it was not their first outing. <laughs> it was their second outing. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 273 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and right now I wish I had a tail. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, one, like tails are amazing. Do you not wish you had a tail? And if so, what tail would you have? Uh, well, probably a fox's tail because they are quite cool. Yeah, cool. Although I saw a lot of squirrels this weekend and they do that shaky shaky thing with their tail. That's, I can imagine you being cool. cross with someone and just letting them know by shaking your tail and barking. Yeah. yeah. Jen, what tail would you have? Um... Funnily enough, we were talking about tails yesterday. I don't want this tail, but Lyra was asking me about horses' poo. And I said, the thing is, Lyra, horses lift up their tails to poo. Yeah, but you don't want that tail. No, I don't really want that tail. Although I suppose it's practical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'd have a prehensile tail, like a monkey tail. So it's like having an extra pair of hands, you know, could hang on stuff and feel like it'd be useful. Or a lizard's tail so that if someone got hold of you, you could, you know... We've worked in the comedy industry. It'd be handy to be able to escape. <laughs> Just jettison that tale. See yeah. Mickey, given that you've done a thing on transhumanism and I've done a thing on sort of posthumanism <laughs> recently, I mean, the tales for humans might not be that far well, off. Well, the reason I wish I had a tale right now is because I have bruised very badly my coccyx and I Ooh. feel like a tail would have maybe cushioned it because at the moment it is agony to sit, stand or lie down, which are all of my favourites. Have you done that, mate? I fell on a boat and, yeah, I clatter-banged on a speedboat because I've been on holiday, guys, and it went over a particularly choppy wave and I just went up in the air, cracked on the seat and cracked into the boat and, yeah, was a very bruised Mickey Noonan. It's that classic when someone pulls a seat away, isn't it, and you're on the floor, ouch. It's, it's so sore. And yeah, you can't put a heat pad on your tailbone. <laughs> There's no way of attaching that. No. Need a bath, Mickey. I do, if only mine didn't leak into the lounge. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if I'd had that monkey's tail, as I started to fall, I could have grabbed hold of the rail of the bow. It'd have all been much better. Yeah. Damn you, evolution! Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I washed my car after such a long time that I didn't recognise it the next time <laughs> I saw it. This immediately makes me think of that time that you lost your mum because she got in someone else's car. <laughs> yeah. Well, I took my mum to a funeral on Friday and because I was I was rear-ended and a lot of the paintwork on the back of my car is chipped, I haven't been able to get it fixed yet but B, I haven't been able to take it through a, like a proper Gosh. cleaner because it would just take loads more of it off mm. so I was going to have to do it by hand and it's just, it's been really hot and or it was raining, there was never a good time but it was basically green it's supposed to be white so I, I was <laughs> taking my mum to a funeral and I decided to clean it so I, I just got the old sponge and the bucket out and gave it a good clean or what I thought was quite a slapdash clean but it turned out to be such a good clean that I drove to my mum's house, I put the car on the driveway and then I, my nephew and I went for a walk and when I came back I was like, it was parked on Mary's driveway. So that was me. <laughs> it was just I didn't recognise it because it was so fucking clean and sparkly. That's amazing. Did it confuse your mum as well? <laughs> no, no. She, no, she was all right. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and this week I welcomed the small ginger dictator Amaran Meow Meow into my home. It's a great dictator's name, Amaran Meow Meow. Yeah. yeah. From like a later Chinese dynasty, yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, Amaran is short for catamaran. You can blame my mum for that. And Meow Meow is uh, a Lyra's work, guys. 
I think maybe all cats surname is actually Meow Meow, but Lyra's actually put it out there. She said the, the quiet bit out loud. One of my friends reminded me recently that Meow Meow was a uh, oh, a drug. It's yes, a fancy that, drug, that, wasn't it? That yeah. took off a while ago, which I'd forgotten about. But um, obviously Lyra doesn't know about that, so it's fine. Not yet, Jed. Give her time. Give her time. <laughs> How are things going with the fairy dictator? Has he made any demands so far? No executions as yet. Good lad. Like him. Sort of sits around, watches, observes, has a little play. Big fan of his work. Excellent. Uh, not a lot of dictating thus far, quite a lot of hiding under the sofa, but, okay. you know. Give him time. Give him time. That's how they all start. <laughs> yeah, famously, that's how they all start. <laughs> How's his tail? It's lovely. It's like a little ginger piece of string. Big fan. Damn you, evolution. <laughs> Coming up, I chat with author and mental health campaigner Lucy Nicholl about what her brain's been up to, the problem with sorry being the easiest word, and no worries if not, her new rom-com for Harper North. In Journey of the Blocks, I talk to the excellent Dr Carrie Dunn about the new WSL season and her book, Woman Up. And speaking of rom-coms, in Rated or Dated, we ask once again, how romantic is stalking as we watch 1993's Sleepless in Seattle? But first, thank goodness for animals. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're celebrating the first good news out of Downing Street in ages. Larry the Cat is not, as previously reported, poorly. Yay! Just sick of living with the fucking Tories. (laughs) That poor cat. That poor, poor cat. He's the only bright light in that street, isn't he? Yeah. Go, Larry. Yeah, he is looking a bit a bit old, he I thought, when old, I saw a photo he? of him. I think he's 12. I think he's lived with five PMs. What, this year? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, in 12 years. But presumably, like, you'd only live with one for quite a while. And then yeah. and they keep bringing dogs in, don't they? I mean, I, I can't go there, Hannah. It's it's too soon. It's too close to home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you something for nothing. I did not miss the news when I was away. Ugh. And so I bring you good news. Oh, okay. Okay. More accurately, I bring you a very small slither of good news about a wider horror. That wider horror is domestic violence and the slither of good news comes courtesy of Cornflakes. Well, Kellogg, the Cornflakes people slash food giant, which has announced a new domestic abuse policy for its workers. Anyone suffering the impact of domestic abuse will be entitled to 10 days additional leave, cash help for an initial legal support meeting and a one-off payment to set up a bank account. And that last one is particularly key given financial abuse and control is a huge Mm. part of why a lot of people cannot leave their abusers. Kellogg also provides access to a free 24-hour confidential counselling service and flexible working arrangements. And this new policy covers all staff at its head office in Manchester and its two factories based in Trafford and Wrexham. So this is great support for Kellogg's workers, and I hope more companies, big and small, roll out similar policies. It is also pretty good for raising awareness around domestic abuse and what companies can do to support their workers going through it. Because domestic abuse affects more than 2.4 million adults per year, so it is everyone's business to help tackle Mm. it. And on a business tip, and by that I mean how it affects the bottom line, it really does affect the bottom line, with domestic abuse costing businesses an estimated £1.9 billion a year 
due to decreased productivity, wow, time off work, right? Lost wages and sick pay. Maybe you run a company and you're listening to this wondering how you could get involved. In which case, take a look at the EIDA, which stands for Employers Initiative on Domestic Abuse, and which you'll find at eida.org.uk. It has loads of resources, including a very impressive toolkit that can help employers learn how to recognise, refer, respond to and record domestic abuse. Now, I know you lovely lot are probably already on board with this being a very good idea, but just to underline how much of a lifeline it can be, it's worth pointing out that one, not all domestic abuse happens at home. Research has found that 75% of women experiencing domestic abuse are targeted at work through threatening phone calls and emails, physical assaults, unannounced visits, all of that. But two, work is also one of the few places someone who is being abused can physically create a distance from their perpetrator Mm. and have the opportunity to access the support they need. Finally, a reminder that if you or someone you know is affected by domestic abuse, the National Domestic Abuse Helpline operates 24-7, either by phone, either, either by phone, (laughs) either by phone, 0808 2000 247 or online at nationaldahelpline.org.uk. That's great. Well done, Cornflakes. Well, exactly. I was about to say, you know, the story that Cornflakes started in an attempt to stop wankers. Yeah, I've seen the Matthew Broderick's film. It's Matthew Broderick plays Kellogg, doesn't he? Still stopping wankers in 2023. Yes. Well done. So, what's this? Another bit of good news. Wandered <laughs> off and turned up in the other bit of the news section. What do we call that? Hard news? Bad news? The bad news I thought news this section. might lead to yeah. a joke. It hasn't. So be it. So let's get to the point where I say the writer's strike is over after 146 days. Yay! Probably. Oh. On Monday, which was yesterday as we record, most of the media reported tentatively that a deal had been reached between negotiators for the Writers Guild of America and Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Variety was a bit more effusive with the headline shouting, deal! <laughs> I mean, that is variety, though. It's always quite effusive, right? <laughs> yeah. They probably do jazz hands when uh, they said always. it. Yeah. How they get any typing done, I don't know how. <laughs> Details are a bit sketchy at the moment because they are still said to be dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And presumably the WGA will tell its 11,000 members before it tells the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And they will then have to vote on the deal. And while no one is returning to work just yet, everyone does seem positive that the 146-day strike, the longest since 1988, is all but over with pickets called off. The Actors' Union, SAG-AFTRA, which has been on strike since July the 14th, was quick to congratulate the WGA negotiators and I'm sure have taken heart from this news. According to CNN, the two Hollywood strikes have had an economic impact of around $5 billion. Wowzers. With industries like restaurants, service firms and prop shops also feeling the effects from the ongoing disputes. Of course. Four Hollywood leaders participated in the last three days of negotiations that finally broke the stalemate. Maybe if they turned up sooner, who am I to say? (laughs) Anyway, that was Disney's Bob Iger, NBC Universal's Donna Langley, Netflix's... That's always hard to say, isn't it? Ted Sarandos and David Zaslav of Warner Brothers Discovery. 
In a letter to members, WGA said, quote, we can say with great pride that this deal is exceptional with meaningful gains and protections for writers in every sector of the membership. One last thing to say, if you're an actor, a car worker, a teacher, a junior doctor, a university lecturer, or indeed a member of the many, many unions currently striking in the US and the UK, best of luck to you. There is hope. It is great news. And obviously, like you say, it's still like a tiny bit sensitive. But it just shows the power of strike and why we need to fight for our right to be able to strike and why it's important to support those people who are striking. Yeah, I mean, hurt them in the pocket. Absolutely. It's slightly harder in the situations, like say over here, for example, you know, when people are negotiating with the government, <laughs> the nurses and teachers, aren't they, as opposed to negotiating with with private individuals and also you know with the trains over here it's a lot more inconvenient for the your average member of the public than it is for us to not be watching a film that we maybe want to watch they have a harder job here because it's you know it's harder to get people on on board when you haven't got John Hamm standing on your picket line or whatever <laughs> certainly less photographic strike is is John Ham standing on your picket line some sort of euphemism you'd like to happen, Hannah? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> End of story. So, Mickey, I've known you for nearly a decade. What, what a decade. Amazing. <laughs> so I'm not even going to bother asking you if you'd trade one good news story for two stories about animals living their best lives. <laughs> First up. Let's go to India, where crocodiles have seemingly taken the decision not to be total pricks their whole and indeed very long lives and not eat a dog when given the chance. Now, I feel the need to qualify that I saw this in The Independent, which has appeared to throw out all incredulity and fact-checking in recent (laughs) years. So how true it is, I don't know. But much like a lot of the Indies output in recent years, I'm going to tell you it because I very much want it <laughs> to be true. I think the job's in the bag, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, call me Indie. I am available. There are photos of the said dog, which, in a prime case of out of the frying pan into the fire, was being chased by a pack of feral dogs and leapt into the river full of crocodiles to escape. Uh-oh! Uh-oh. <laughs> but hold up. What the crocodiles did next has caused scientists to question whether the notoriously bad bastards are actually capable of empathy. I say again, I read this in The Independent. I think crocodile is Latin for notoriously bad bastard. (laughs) Notoriousus bastardus. The creatures apparently nudged the dog to the other bank where it was able to climb out of the river and away from the feral dog's incredible scenes. It's so lovely. It's like a Disney story. Exactly. Well, perhaps they weren't hungry. I'll tell you who was hungry, though, Mick. (laughs) The two bears in Alaska who discovered a Krispy Kreme van open and popped inside to eat, and I quote, 20 packs of donut holes, And six lots of the three packs of chocolate donuts. (laughs) Go bears. (laughs) A delivery driver had gone into the store and left the back door of his van open. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Now, I don't know if the mum and baby bear just happened to amble by. What luck. Or their sense of smell is just that great. Quick, Teddy, someone's left the door open on a Krispy Kreme van. To town! (laughs) 
But I do know that that is some incredible donut eating in such a short space of time. <laughs> and take it from someone who knows. Oh, that time I caught you coming out of the back of a van covered in jam, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> you said we would never have to talk about that again. I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you know what? I actually don't like Krispy Kreme donuts. I'm quite old-fashioned. I like a, just like a, a sugary donut. ring donut or a jam donut. That will do me. Anyway, Krispy Kreme spokesperson Candy Sargent said it was a learning experience <laughs> for staff members. Like, how high were those bears? Yeah, how high were they? They were must have been off their tiny eight nipples on <laughs> sugar. On yeah. sugar. Wowzers. More news of this kind next week, please. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where, and I can't believe I am about to say this, even I was surprised at the level of male entitlement and abuse. I know! You'd (laughs) think I was Teflon on this score by now, hey? But yeah, the news that a third of female surgeons have been assaulted by a colleague often in the operating theatre, has shocked me. Because it's fucking shocking. A study published in the British Journal of Surgery this month found that 29.9% of women working in surgery in the UK have been sexually assaulted. That is physically assaulted by a colleague in the past five years. One morning in a corridor when discussing a case about to go to theatre, the member of staff commented on my breasts, hugged me and rubbed his erection on my thigh, reported one woman. He'd frequently rub himself against me repetitively during surgery, grunt and gasp in my ear, then leave the operating theatre before the operation was over, said another about a different man. Now, this isn't just appalling conditions and awful news for the women working in surgery, which, just to reiterate, it very much is. It's bad news for patients, too. Too fucking right. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know about you, although I am going to hazard a guess that, like me, if someone's operating on you, you would rather they were concentrating on the job at hand rather than molesting a colleague. Exactly. I'd like to think, Hannah, that, you know, you and I agree on this, but I think it's something that we could all agree on. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Insert your own hollow laughter Uh. here, listeners. The Times covered this story and Dr. Peter Hilton, a former consultant anaesthetist slash intensivist... I know what's coming. Wrote in with the following letter. Sir, this snowflake generation of young doctors, largely female and selected on mainly academic excellence, clearly did not do their homework. We are off to an incredible start, Peter. Strap in, listeners. Is there a problem with employing people because of their academic excellence? (laughs) We've been doing it wrong all these years. What is school for, Hannah? Yeah, come on. Peter's got other ideas. Do you want to hear more of Peter's other ideas? I mean, no, but you've made the effort to write this shit down, so go on then. Medical practice and training is brutal and demanding, with long hours and bullying happens. Sexually inappropriate comments and actions do occur. It is stressful. All I can say is that if they want to make a success of this rewarding career, then they should toughen up. Perhaps four A-stars at A-level are not the answer to all the problems they will face. Well, shit, Peter... I don't want to defame you at all, and my maths isn't always the best, but this two and two you sent to the Times (laughs) does seem to lead straight to four. Sad to hear you're no longer working in surgeries. You seem like a great guy and not at all a human red flag who thinks women are men's support animals. 
We were concerned to see such views expressed in the Times letter page by a doctor who is no longer on the medical register, said the General Medical Council. <laughs> Let's that. get that clear. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, that is the UK's independent regulator of doctors. Chief Exec of the GMC, Charlie Massey, added, It should be a relief to all good and responsible doctors that this issue is out in the open and that the report evidences the issue in such detail that it cannot be denied or brushed aside. Problems clearly run deep and long-term strategies will be needed to address cultures of misogyny and sexism that have been allowed to take root in some workplaces and to ensure fair access and a level playing field for all doctors. I mean, it's a shame it's taken you to 2023, Charlie, but appreciate the thought. Get yeah. action in that. Yeah, I mean, if that, those female doctors didn't do their homework, have the GMC not been doing their homework <laughs> to find out it was going on as well? Well, as you know, Hannah, homework is very much overrated because, yeah, what of Peter? You can bet your bottom dollar he hasn't shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, no. Instead, he has doubled down on his comments, telling the Times in an interview after his letter that he stood by his letter and adding, if these girls... Oh, that's telling, isn't it? It's telling. If these girls want to be a surgeon, they are going to have to deal with much more difficult things than another surgeon saying something inappropriate. What a guy. No surprise here that I stand by my previous comments about Peter. And he has certainly highlighted exactly why sexual abuse in the NHS still thrives and prospers. I don't know why I'm giving him like the benefit of my thoughts, but here they are, Peter, <laughs> if you're listening. That statement, they're going to have to deal with harder stuff. Yeah, they probably are. They're probably going to have to deal with people dying on the table in front of them. Yep. That stuff is necessary. They don't have to deal with unnecessary stuff on top of that. There isn't like an on-ramp in which they say, okay, how about I grope your tits? Now you're ready to deal with someone having a heart attack on the table in front right. of you. It's ridiculous. Now... I wasn't sure whether to say this, but I don't know if anyone's interested, but Peter has actually written a book. I say now. <laughs> He's written a book and there's a former anesthetist. Is it self-published? I didn't do too much research, to be honest with you, Hannah. I just know that it's called It's a Gas or What a Gas, some sort of anesthetist joke because he's clearly a very funny guy. I am joined on the Zoom by Lucy Nicol. Lucy, one of our own, a mental health advocate and campaigner, author with non-fiction and fiction under a belt, and proud northerner. Lucy, hello. Oh, yeah, totally proud northerner, 100%. <laughs> now, I know I can ask you this question because it's something that you are really passionate about. So how is your lovely brain doing at the moment? Oh, my lovely brain's doing okay at the minute. I mean, it's a little bit all over the shop because, as well, as a woman to a certain age, as we say, balancing antidepressants, thyroid tablet hrt and everything else that comes with it is a little bit of a of a pair but generally in a good place and the anxiety is fairly low so incredible scenes i mean obviously you're some sort of warrior because you've managed to get your hands on the hrt well done it's like fucking hen's teeth <laughs> oh my god it was hard hard work it was very difficult and uh it was actually a doctor's receptionist that said to me when I rang up almost in tears because of the insomnia. She just keep telling me to keep a sleep diary. And she said, now I'll tell you which GP you need to see because she's so upon this stuff. And I got in and rest is history. So listeners will probably be familiar with your voice being on my end of a chat because you've done quite a few interviews for us around mental health. And I love how open you are about your own mental health. It feels nice being able to ask you that because it does feel like sharing what we've been through and what we go through is helpful all round, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Because it's, I mean, it's 
that cliche of saying normalizing conversation, but it really is. It's, I mean, that's what it's all about, being able to just like let our guard down because if you don't let your guard down, I think it's, it's so much hard work trying to sit on a panic attack and not tell anybody about it. I remember from the 90s, because who even knew what they were back then was really, really tough. So, yeah, I think being able to get rid of that front and just talk about how you really feel, it's like relief, palpable relief, I would say. Absolutely. Now then, let's talk about your writing. What book are we on? Five? Yeah, oh my God. Ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. God, because I remember when I first got in touch with you and, and I'd been writing the standard issue and I was like, is this a really stupid idea? I'm really nervous saying this. Do you think I could write a book? Is it a silly thing for me to do? Is it what everybody says? And you were like, no, just go for it. Just do it. And I did it and wrote a book in 2018, which I collaborated with one of the standard issue illustrators, Joe Neary, mm. on. But yeah, so now I've written, I've written, yeah, I've got five books published. <laughs> I mean, well done you, but mainly well done me. Anyway, your latest <laughs> novel is for Half and North and is called No Worries If Not. Actually, it's got an exclamation point, so maybe it should be No Worries If Not. I think that's how you say it. So talk yeah. us through <laughs> what is happening with our protagonist, Lucy Nichols. Sorry, Charlotte. She's called Charlotte Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there has to be a little bit of uh, of me in there. There's a little bit in everything. Charlotte, it's very different to me, but I think most of us can relate be it especially women let's face it can relate to being overly apologetic the first scene that i wrote did actually come from my own experience of apologizing for having a tilted cervix at smear <laughs> <laughs> it's like why am i apologizing for that and, and i remember the nurse saying um oh don't be silly it's very rare that i go in there to find one waving back at me like <laughs> so most of them are, most of them are so it kind of made me think about like how we apologise for literally everything and what was the most ridiculous thing I'd apologise for. So basically Charlotte, she is a young woman, she lives in Newcastle and she realises that she apologises for literally everything and the turning point comes obviously in the smear test and she decides to break up with the word sorry. So that is what she's on a mission to do. But obviously, in true rom-com style, there are a few little obstacles along the way, such as the fit man spreader on the metro. (laughs) The fit man spreader on the metro. Yeah, there's a a romance tied throughout, and that is really cool, and it's lovely, and it's really well done. But I liked that it wasn't the main focus, that actually her relationship with herself and her relationship with feminism is actually key to what we're, we're reading about with Charlotte. I was going to ask, Lucy, it's on my list of questions. Are you a sorry person? Are you someone who says sorry a lot? But when we were just getting ready to start the interview, you hadn't got your headphones ready and you apologised to me four times. So I'm going to say, yes, you're still a sorry person. This book hasn't cured you. It hasn't cured me, but it's gone a long way. I don't think I'd use the word no worries if not at the end of an email since I'm writing it, like unless I've used it in an ironic way. But yeah, we do. I realised I do apologise for everything. I mean, I did apologise for the position of my cervix, which is just ridiculous. So yes, I am one of those people. And there are many, many, many of us out there because I've had so many come back to me and say, oh my God, I'm such a people pleaser. This is so me, you know. 
there was um, somebody I know who she's written a review in her fifties, and she said she sometimes worries about whether she can relate to a younger character in a book. She was like, I could so relate. It's just what I do. So it's like an epidemic, isn't it? Like, sorry, epidemic. The over-apologizing, we all do it. We do, we do. I think by we, though, it's very much more women and girls. It seems to be quite gendered. And traditionally, and I can only hope, even though it is the hope that will kill me, but I can only hope that this is changing in some quarters at least. Girls tend to be more often rewarded for focusing on other people's feelings and so become conditioned or groomed to be attuned to how their actions affect others, no matter what those actions are, whether they're then just doing really well at something, or will they feel bad because I've done really well. While boys tend to be rewarded for asserting themselves and so become more direct. And there are stats from quite a lot of studies now to back this up. And I have seen it in action a lot and your book absolutely like, yep, nails it. Women tend to say sorry more than men. How do we stop it, Lucy? The answer, um, I think that recognising it is at least uh, a little step in the right direction. But what I tried to acknowledge as well, and I, you know what, I think when I think back, this whole uh, girls as boys t-shirts, was, um, it was a writer who'd written about it and it was standard issue, I think, that had retweeted it where I, I saw this, where... Um, this writer had gone round like Primark or wherever and looked at the different t-shirts and in the boys section it was all like icon and adventurer whereas in the girls section it was gratitude and be kind and you know be kind needs to get in the fucking bin because lots of people who are using that phrase don't understand what kindness is who think no (laughs) as well as forcing it upon women and girls much more than upon men it's a nice thing, isn't it? We need we need little girls not to be told to be nice. It's such a shit word, and it's it, it's it doesn't so nothing-y. achieve anything. It's like I think you know I would much rather see like the Spark Company T-shirts sale in the girl section inverted commas girl section of like Primark whatever that say things like you know if you're not angry you haven't been listening. <laughs> or um, insecurities were created in a boardroom full of men. Um, woman up, like all of that stuff, because they are really good, powerful messages that you can straight away get on board with. And and it's like they're having to undo all of this negativity that we've been consuming and absorbing. And you know, even when you think back to like when you were a teenager or whatever, and like in the magazines, it was all about how to use your man in the bedroom. It's like, hang on a minute. <laughs> Absolutely. So when I started writing, I started writing as a journalist for Ladsmag. So that was my uh, entry into the world of journalism. And I'd always, always wanted to write for FHM. It had been something I'd wanted to write for since I'd come across it in like, like probably my early teens. And it was because the women's magazines were all like, how to get your man, how to keep your man, how to please your man, how to win your man back. And I was like, fuck off. And the lads mags. Now, yes. I'm not going to say they weren't problematic, Lucy. It's clearly, <laughs> clearly problematic. And I absolutely added to that problem. But they were funny. Like, they absolutely yes. took the piss out of their readers, as well as bigging them up in a way that the women's magazines seem to make us smaller. Yeah, totally. It, it was all about, I mean, all playing on insecurities, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Because not only were we there to serve in the bedroom, it was about, you know, how to look thinner, how to 
look younger, how to, yeah, all of these things, how to make your hair thicker. It's basically this message that you're not good enough as you are. And obviously, I do not need to preach that to you. And yeah, I just always felt like growing up, we were thinking we were being empowered. We thought we were being empowered by talking about sex. We weren't talking about sex in the right way, I don't think. It was about pleasing. We weren't talking about how we looked in the right way. It was about changing. It never felt like it was about being who we are and being confident and getting out of life what we want. I think even with the, yeah, the whole like, you know, career ambitions and stuff, one thing that, and I think this probably goes across both um, for men and women, imposter syndrome obviously plays part in this. And I think that there's something about how there's a, a pathway set in terms of what we're meant to do, how we're meant to progress in our careers. And I think even that's just bullshit because, you know, it's like you look at somebody who's an amazing, talented, creative person, but to achieve anything, they've also got to be good at managing budgets and managing a team. And so I just feel like we've got all of these structures in place in the world that don't really reward us for our true talents. They kind of re- reward medi- mediocrity. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> a little bit good at everything and you know, fit into these structures and fit into this image of what a woman should be and how you should achieve. And yeah, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a little soapbox there. I love it. I also love that um, Charlotte goes onto little soapboxes, but with herself, and I could really relate to the fact that she has these kind of, am I doing feminism right discussions with herself, like I do all of the time. This comes yes. to the fore, particularly when she goes for what you term a trim and edge, but what I refer to as a rip and squeal, aka the bikini wax. <laughs> oh yes, because she's like, now am I doing this for me? Well, of course I'm doing it for me because I want to feel that way. But why do I want to feel that way? Do I want to feel that way because I've been told by the magazines that I should look that way? Yeah, like, who is it for? Is it for her or not? And I think the whole thing about are we doing feminism right, I get I get those feelings so often. Like, am I body confident when I want to, you know, lose a little bit of weight? Like, can I truly say that I'm, you know, it's all about body positivity and, and, you know, diversity and embracing who we are if I want to change little bits about myself. So I sometimes worry about that. And I've, I've gone through swinging from like, oh, I love my curves. I'm happy with who I am. So I want to change it. Therefore, am I a bad feminist? And I don't know if that's just part of the learning journey and confusion of what we've grown up with, I suppose. I think body positivity is a really, really interesting one because it's still trying to force us to have a certain opinion of ourselves as opposed to I quite like the phrase body neutrality when you're just kind of this is my body it can do amazing things I am grateful for it do I love it sometimes yeah and I'm like wow look at that that's amazing I like my curves or whatever and sometimes no but if I can just be like grateful for it, that seems to me a good midpoint. Whereas body positivity seems to be like, no, you have to be shouting about it and celebrating. And it's really empowering to just be like, is it? Because now I feel like I'm doing it wrong the other way if I don't feel like yeah. that about myself. Yeah. And I think what we were chatting about earlier as well about um, 
we were talking about strength training and I think there's something about like why are we doing fitness are we doing fitness to um be well to be fit to be strong or are we doing fitness to lose a bit of our body um to lose weight if you like and it's like the same with what we eat are we eating because we want to fuel our body with lots of brilliant stuff or are we eating to lose weight and I think it's like flipping it around isn't it it's about being healthy and fit and strong but not necessarily about doing that to conform to an image I suppose and I'm not going to pretend that I don't do that because of course I do because that's what I've grown up with Social conditioning's one hell of a drug, Lucy. It's one of my favourite phrases for a yeah. reason. Let's have yes. that on a T-shirt. Um, it yeah. did feel, it did feel like when I was reading, no worries if not, that uh, Lucy Nickel got a lot off her chest, if I'm honest with you. I think I did. I think there were certain things inspired by my own experience and stuff. But yeah, it was like, it was like I was able to rant through fiction. <laughs> in a way it's really only um and i hope that people reading it kind of feel like you know they feel seen they feel like they can relate to it because i think charlotte does come out the other side and she's like no i'm not perfect i'm not gonna be the perfect feminist but this is what i'm gonna do i'm i'm gonna take some step to um not apologizing to striking the balance to yeah, just kind of finding her own way in the world rather than being told where she needs to be and how she needs to behave. But yeah, there, there were certain things in there that are not, they're not a carbon copy of my experiences other than the beer test, which almost is. <laughs> um, but they are, yeah, they're definitely like inspired by some of the situations I've been in. The workplace situation, the toxic workplace situation, I've seen that, I felt that, I've been affected by that. I have had some bad experiences at the hands of senior men in organisations from a um, a bullying and gaslighting point. Yeah, I think that what I was trying to get off my chest there was to kind of show that sometimes we are stuck in these dynamics that our careers and our livelihoods depend on. And people abuse their positions of power. Mm -hmm. I think that what I also would love to do in my writing is whilst I think we need to explore where misogyny exists and the, you know, the effects of a patriarchal society actually highlight and showcase where men do great things as well. And so, you know, her best mate Mush is fabulous. And, and there's a guy in the office who acknowledges what she's going through and he takes action. He wants to do something about it. It's about acknowledging that we're not perfect. None of us are. We just need to acknowledge where we fuck up, basically, and learn and move on. Definitely. And and the message I took from it as well is we do have a tendency to notice something that we're doing is that is detrimental to us or detrimental to others and then put quite a flat rule down. And actually what yeah. happens is Charlotte puts this flat rule down. I am not saying sorry for a year. And of course, that's not maintainable. And when she tries to maintain it, she ends up going too far the other way. So it's just that kind of ease off on ourselves, like take notice of things, maybe set yourself some more boundaries and work through stuff. Because if you go from black to white very quickly, that's probably not going to be great for you either, or indeed for the people around you in your relationships with them. Yeah, and I think that we can see that in so many ways, like 
that this isn't about over apologizing but i know in terms of mental health advocacy and stuff like online you know there have been people who if they see some mental health stigma will just like you know be very angry and sort of publicly attack the person who has said something like you know for example oh my god i'm so ocd i have a house as clean as monica friends or you know whatever ridiculous stereotypes and they're wrong and they're harmful um, and we need to change but I think if we took the the approach that everybody who uses in stereotype is a bad person and they need taking down a privacy it's just not good it, it doesn't work absolutely Lucy you're talking about nuance and I'm here for it I miss it I want it back thank you <laughs> so yeah. No Worries If Not is published by Harper North and out now where can people find out more about Lucy Nicholl yeah, I'm doing TikTok now, which is weird because I'm not very <laughs> down with it. I'm giving it a go. I'm, I'm on Instagram, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nicole. <laughs> Amazing. Lucy, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. That is fine with me. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined by sports journalist, friend of the podcast, friend of mine, author of, I think now four Squillian books, Dr. Carrie Dunn. Carrie, welcome back. Thank you for having me back, Jen. What a lovely introduction. You you are welcome. I'm very glad that you're back because there's a lot to discuss. I think like, you know, normally you're averaging like, you know, a book a year, which is pretty impressive by anyone's standards. But this year it's two. What a show off. I am actual idiot. I don't know why I did this. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And then you actually have to write the two books. You can't just like say, I will write two books. You have to then yeah. actually write them. This has been, been a year, been a busy year. So you've written two. You had one that was published a bit earlier in the year, which is The Reign of the Lionesses, which is like part of a sort of series that you've been writing over a number of years. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that one to start off with? Yeah, that's right. So it's the third in a trilogy. So I say a trilogy. I'm assuming I'm, I'm only going to write three books in this series. I think I think I'm done with it. I think so. It's a season in the life of English domestic women's football. So the two previous books, the Roar of the Lionesses and the Pride of the Lionesses, were coming after uh, the 2015 Women's World Cup and before the 2019 Women's World Cup. And it was following the season in the life around those tournaments. So obviously this one leading up to, to this summer's World Cup, but after the Euros win. So it's kind of a particularly interesting little snapshot to see how Euros glory changed things and kind of the lead up to, to this summer and how that has affected the pyramid, how everything going on at the top has or hasn't improved things uh, for those playing further down and towards grassroots. After the Euro win last year, one of the things that I thought was really nice was that it's not just about, you know, obviously watching these players and what they've achieved and, and, you know, and, and all of that kind of side of things, which is obviously great, fantastic, but also kind of to sort of take it all in as an industry, because obviously there's people, you know, there's there's 
previous lionesses who are now working, you know, jobs as pundits, etc., etc. And there's the people like you, Carrie, and other journalists who have been sort of knocking around, fighting the good fight for a while now. And it's really nice to see everyone, everyone kind of have their day in the sun. That was one of the things that struck me about it. And obviously you had a book out at the time, Unsuitable for Females, which did Mm. really well, was nominated for all sorts of awards, which is fantastic as well. You know, do you feel like you're more in demand as someone writing about women's football? That's a really interesting question. And I don't want to sound downbeat because obviously I think the growth of the game is fantastic. And I think it is brilliant that these women at the very top of the game are getting loads of money. And I think it's brilliant that they're celebrities and you'll see them on chat shows, sofa and all that kind of stuff. But it's the same concern I've actually had since the start of the WSL. Now, the WSL, when it was launched, um, it was actually delayed by a year because everything was going a little bit wrong with the American domestic setup. And they thought they'd kind of wait a little bit longer and see how America fixed things before they launched their own league, which I think was quite sensible, kind of learning mm-hmm. from mistakes. But I think the WSL itself, it was founded with one of the driving forces being we would need to improve the national team because we had a massive talent drain to the US. We didn't have a very particularly competitive league over in England. The WSL was meant to fix that. And I think to a lot of extent, it has. And I think that you you can't argue against a a European Championship and a World Cup final. Yes, it's fantastic. However, I think that growth has been very big, very, very fast. And I think we're still, we're almost like a baby deer and we're kind of like on ice skates and we're kind of slipping and sliding all over the place. We're we're, we're nearly there, but there are so many obstacles still there that we haven't quite overcome, that we haven't, we haven't anticipated almost. I mean, we're seeing now the investment coming in, brilliant, but that's still going to those big clubs Mm. who probably have enough money already i think the the concern that i still have is as we go further down the pyramid where are players coming from where are they being invested in geographically what's happening i mean we've seen the youth talent pathway be rejected like three or four times just in the past 10 years just to make sure that there's a broad enough demographic to make sure that all the best talent is being watched and i kind of feel it's It does extend, I think, into the media. I think it's fantastic that we have women's football reporters on lots of these big newspapers. But you've got one women's football reporter and people are pointing to that and saying, look, we've got a women's football reporter. Okay, Mm. brilliant. So is that person doing all of women's football? That's a lot of stuff to cover. Whereas you've got kind of, you know, reporters for every different patch in the Premier League. So we're not quite there yet. And there's an awful lot of work and... I think women's sport, women's everything, always kind of gets judged in a different way to men's stuff. We're expected to get everything sorted out immediately like that. Otherwise, you know, it's judged, it's written off as being you know, entirely rubbish and nobody can ever fix it. And I think it's a, it's a process. We're going through that process and I don't think we're quite there yet. I think it's fantastic what we're seeing at the top. I think it's fantastic that we're seeing newspapers with with women's football reporters, but I don't think that should be where we're stopping looking for for the growth of the game, to put it like that. Your second book this year, Woman Up, Pitches, Pay and Periods, The Progress and Potential of Women's Football, basically 
this new book, you're you're looking at sort of various different issues in football, women's football, that is. Can you tell me a little bit about the book? Do you know what? I love writing this book so much. It's the book I've wanted to write for quite a while in that it's looking at challenges, but addressing them kind of more globally and also with a historical aspect to it as well. So it's not just kind of digging over just the history. It's also looking at things like you know, obstacles that still remain in women's football, you know, We've got things like you know, Carson Pickett, I speak to, the USA International, who has um, limb difference. These are things that we haven't thought about women's football before. We don't talk about this stuff. I mean, it tends to be a, a lot of the challenges, I think, still get glossed over. But if you're glossing over challenges, how can you fix them? And it's, it's a phrase that Emma Hayes comes up with a lot. She says, women aren't small men. And it's really important to yeah. it's really important to yeah. think about because if you yeah. think about the, the the physicality and the sports mm-hmm. science and the kit and the rehab from injury, all this stuff that any professional athlete needs to think about, we need to think about them all differently for women's football. And if we're not doing that, then we're doing all our players from top to bottom, top to grassroots, an absolute disservice. So it's been fantastic to talk to some amazing women from all around the world, from all eras of football about different aspects of the game that they encountered while they were playing and what they'd like to see change still. What was the most fascinating thing for you to research and find out more about, given that you do know so much about the women's game already? What's really, really cool about this was, you know, people like Pia Sundhag are getting to talk to her about her playing career because obviously she now, people know her as a you know top quality coach, but she was in that first Sweden team that won the Euros back in 1984. So getting to talk to her about her playing career was really, really awesome. Um, Talking to sports scientists and kind of breaking down some of their academic work and what that actually means in practice, that was also really cool because I think we see quite often top lines of research studies and we think, oh, well, periods, ACL, women, you know, there we go, that's all encapsulated in two sentences but it's not and to kind of go through things in more detail and actually ask the questions that I have when I'm reading those news stories was really really awesome. Okay so I wanted to pick just a couple of those a couple of the issues that you that you write about because there's so many and, and they're so fascinating but a couple of kind of hot topics that do come up in the press a bit particularly at the moment you've already mentioned one of them injuries and in particular ACL injuries because that has been a really hot topic over the last couple of years but particularly the last year because we've seen at Arsenal four key players sidelined for a really long time because an ACL is a pretty serious injury. What's been going on at Arsenal? Have you got any kind of insight into that or or like you know from having having done the work and research that you've done around your book like do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I can't speak to Arsenal particularly. I don't know what they were, don't know what's going on there, or what their rest and recovery and their training is like. But it's so many factors. I think that's the big thing that I picked out from writing this book. So many factors feed in, but not just to ACL injury, to any injury. So it's something like you know, something as simple as sleep patterns. I talked to Chloe Mustaki, the Ireland international in the book, and she said that when she did hers, it was when she was kind of flying backwards and forwards from England to Ireland, going to college, going to training, going to work, all this stuff. And she just knew that her body was going to give out on her. So sleep, it's a really obvious thing, but that's something that I hadn't really kind of put two and two together before. Obviously, the rigours of being a professional footballer 
as a woman haven't really been researched before because it's only been a relatively recent development. Mm -hmm. So we're still kind of in the midst of being able to understand what that actually means physically. So that's something we've got to think about. I mean, there's well-established physical factors that you know, we all know about, you know, hip width and you know, where the knee bends when you jump and land and uh, women tended to be slightly more one-footed than their male counterparts and the standing leg. But again, that's something else I hadn't thought about. Boots. I didn't realise mm. how different the female foot structure is in general um, from their male counterparts. So the stud pattern on your boots, if you're playing in men's boots, could be a contributory factor. If your foot's not quite fitting in your boot and it's slipping, you haven't got that stability. Now, all this stuff is going to be contributing to any kind of serious injury. But when we're looking at ACLs as something that's such a hot buzz topic, you know, there's no simple answer. I, I suppose there never is going to be something that serious. But I think it's really important that we don't, you know, we can't look for a simple answer either. And important thing is to dig into those complex variety of reasons that these injuries happen and start to think how we can reduce those risks. It, there's more to it than just football as well, isn't there? In the book you cite, Caroline Criado-Perez and her mm. book Invisible Women, and, you know, which is basically kind of exposed that literally mm. everything is built with men as the default human. And as you said before, Emma Hayes is we're not just, you know, small men. You know, shoes are not designed mm. for female feet and things like that you know like really really bizarre things that you wouldn't think about but obviously make a massive impact and then if you kind of put those sort of physical things you know if you apply them in a very intense specific circumstance like elite mm. athleticism for example then it's going to be massively compounded right yeah absolutely and you know, socks i didn't think about socks i mean <laughs> who does the girls that i know <laughs> You put socks on, you know, it's yeah. part of your kit, isn't it? But the girls that I know who play football, they're like, no, we cut our socks. We wear our kind of really tight, kind of grippy little socks in our boot and we cut off our socks. I'm like, what? That's mad. Why don't we just have socks that fit you? And they're like, well, no, there's, you know, there's too much material in the foot and there's not enough around the calf. What's going on? Why is no one making these poor women's socks to play football in? So, yeah, it, it is mad. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Caroline uh, Criado Perez and Invisible Women and the data gap. I mean, it's something that I kind of think about every day now. Like, so in our, in our car, so my husband is driving, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat. The seatbelt in the passenger seat drives me mad because it doesn't sit right yeah. on me. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there going, if women design cars, the seatbelt would be going across my chest properly because it doesn't. It doesn't sit right because it just bounces off me. And it, yeah. oh. It really annoys me. So, um, yes, the data gap, it impacts us every day, even if we don't realise it. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, the other hot potato, pay. Because increasingly, mm -hmm. I feel that people are talking about the disparity in pay. Now, obviously, if we look at top flight male footballers, if we look at this from the sort of domestic league sense rather than the international sense, which is getting there, you know, the the disparity is huge and I think mm. impossible really to see that coming down to anywhere near an equal pay situation. I kind of feel like it's a bit of a red herring to kind of focus on this. We need to get the audiences up. We need to find a way of making women's sport in, in general sustainable and 
to my mind, sort of spaffing any investment that comes in on mm. huge overblown salaries is probably not the best way to do that. But that's not that's not necessarily an entirely popular thing to say. I wondered what you think about it. I think I'm kind of with you. I mean, obviously, women at the very top of, of football are going to be earning decent salaries. So, you know, it's not like they're getting paid you know, 25 quid per game like they might have been you know, 25, 30 years ago. So, you know, I think things are moving in the right direction. As more investment comes, more media attention comes, you know, I think those salaries getting higher and higher will follow. I think, you know, there are models to have equal pay. We see it at Lewis with the mm-hmm. men, men and women getting equal pay. That's kind of built into their structure because they're doing the same job. But I know you said kind of looking away from the international game. I, I think that is actually where our, our attention should be focused. These big governing bodies are not not-for-profit associations. Yeah. There's nothing that actually dictates that they have to give the men the big prize money and the women less prize money. I mean, the same you know, with the FA Cup or whatever. There's nothing saying that they have to make sure that the men are getting a bigger share of it and the women get less. It, it's prize money. It's the prize for winning that competition. I think that that should actually be what we focus more of our, t- our attention on to equalise that. I mean, tennis again, for all its issues, has gone a long way to equalising that at the biggest events, you know, Grand Slams. And I think that's absolutely right. It's a prize for winning the same competition, you know, and leaving aside the five-set, three-set nonsense, because, again, that's neither mm. here nor there. It's 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 a prize. So let's have that equal, and then let's think about all the other detail after that. I know that England Lionesses were in conversations with the FA before going to the World Cup mm-hmm. about, you know, that match fee and bonuses and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think I'd go I'd, I'd go for the big money first. I think I'd go for the what's on offer. This is this is your prize money. This is where you're indicating how much you value this competition and all the players that participate in it. If you get towards parity with that mm. and you as a governing body, whoever you are, whether you're FIFA, UEFA, the FA in whatever country, if you are showing that you value the women's competition just as much as you value the men, I think that then takes us a long way towards some of the other things that we want to achieve in terms of getting some respect and investment in women's sport. When we're talking about respect, that doesn't lead me neatly onto my next question. When we're talking about the the highs and lows in women's football as as we are in in Women Up, nothing has, to me, crystallised so publicly and blatantly the inherent sexism in the women's game as what has been going on in Spain recently. I am a bit as well, but I'm sure I'm sure you're kind of bored of talking about it almost. But I wondered what, what your thoughts were on that. We literally put a podcast out today where I've said, I think this is going to run and run. And then it's been announced this morning that apparently that they've all gone willingly to play for Spain today. But it, it, it I mean... Yesterday, there was a picture of them basically being, basically being led to camp against their will. So what is going on? Oh, it's it's a mess, isn't it? And I don't really want to kind of get too sidetracked into talking about Spain, because you say it is going to run and run and things are going to move on. But I think what I would say is that it's made me incredibly sad that the crowning achievement of these women's footballing careers has been sullied in such a way by a man's behaviour. 
And the other thing I would say is that it isn't just about that one man because, no. you know, this runs deeper. It would be an error for any of us to say, oh, well, if he goes and everything's going to be fixed because we are seeing that things are not going to be fixed by just one man uh, leaving one job. What we need is a root and branch review of the way that women's football operates because it wasn't just Spain who went into the Women's World Cup in dispute with their federations. There were all kinds mm. of things going on at all kinds of countries. Women saying what we're getting offered by a federation is not good enough. And I think that's absolutely right that they are using their voices to call for better treatment and that they're standing up for themselves. But and I talk about this towards the end of the book as well. There is still this expectation that women will be grateful for whatever they're given. So, you know, we're letting you play football. What more do you want? You know, we've given you a World Cup. You're on the telly. We're giving you a trophy. What more do you want? And they want a lot more and they deserve a lot more. And that kind of equitable treatment, equitable respect with their male counterparts um, needs to needs to be happening. So we are about to start a new WSL season. Very mm. exciting. In the wake of that World Cup, do you think we can expect anything different this season? Are there new players coming in that we should watch out for? Any kind of emerging talents or indeed emerging superpowers in the game? Because it is still, you know, I think we've seen that that sort of top four is largely mirroring what's happening in men's football. It, is there mm. anything else to, to look out for? Yeah, I mean, obviously we do still have our big four in the WSL, but Aston Villa have certainly been showing in recent months that they have some real intentions to be up there or thereabouts. Obviously they've got Rachel Daly, they're making some fantastic signings. But having said that, I should be interested to see how Arsenal bounced back from that Champions League exit yeah. because that was not good. That is not how they would have wanted to start the season, obviously. Obviously, they've got some great players to come back in um, once Beth Mead and Viviana Miedema uh, are fit again. Lee Williamson as well, of course, and Laura Reuter. I, I'm hoping it will be uh, an equally competitive season. I think we'll, we'll probably see those top four up there or thereabouts, and I think Villa will be in the mix. But I'm excited. I'm excited to see how Alessia Russo settles in at Arsenal. I think that will be interesting. Obviously, there's been lots of talk about uh, about Mary Earps mm. and Manchester United and how much longer she might be there. We know she's going to be there this season. But we have um, you know, a lot of young talent coming through, lots of uh, fresh signings coming in as well after the World Cup. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a good one, I think. So if you enjoyed watching any of those countries during the Women's World Cup that weren't England, you've probably seen at least one representative in the WSL this season. There's been some very, very interesting signings. And Brighton have been, been doing some excellent business down there. I think it is exciting. I think one of the things that I thought was exciting about the World Cup, not just the kind of, you know, because in a World Cup there are always shocks and upsets and, and, and whatnot, but to see some of those teams... You know, there have been certain teams that have dominated the women's game at an, at an international level for quite a long period of time. I'm not just talking about the US, although I was delighted to see them go out as early as they did. Soz, I am petty like that. But like to see some of the teams that maybe we didn't expect to do so well, like Nigeria, like, like Colombia, etc. That's that's huge for the future of the women's game, right? 
Definitely. And obviously in 2019, people were kind of worried about the USA sticking, you know, multiple goals past opponents are still celebrating and, you know, it's not fair, you know, shouldn't have these minnows in the World Cup. But, you know, we're, we're, we're four years on and we're seeing that these minnows, so-called, really stepping up. And the fact that the World Cup has expanded, the fact that the qualification campaign has become bigger and more competitive, the fact that players are you know, playing further afield, they're playing in different leagues, they're getting that experience of different types of football. I think it is fantastic. And I am so glad that the World Cup was expanded. And I hope that there is a steady and sustainable growth for the Women's World Cup in future. Excellent. Carrie, it's always an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Women Up is available as of October the 26th, where can we follow you to find out? I'm sure you'll be doing all sorts of events, as I know you, you usually do. So where can we follow you to see what you're up to? OK, well, I was going to give you my Twitter or my X handle, but to be honest, I might be dead within the next week. So um, <laughs> find me on Facebook, Carrie Dunn Writer. Um, if Twitter X is still alive as of the airing of We're this podcast. We're all paying our I'm... subscription fees, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, ain't going to happen. Um, I'm at Carrie Sparkle and on Insta, Carrie Sparkle123. But yes, I'm off in England on book tour uh, all through uh, October. So I'm probably at a bookshop somewhere near you. Excellent. So make sure you check it out. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Which film finally gave us the answer to the question? Who gave Richard Curtis the idea that stalking is romantic? <laughs> Did we watch this week, Jen? Well, Hannah, this week we watched 1993's rom-com du jour, Sleepless in Seattle, directed and co-written by Queen of Rom-coms, Nora Ephron. It was the second outing of Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, as written in the stars, M-F-E-O, love interests, in case you're interested, because I didn't know this until two minutes ago. <laughs> the first was actually, oh, fuck, what was it? Joe versus the volcano? Yeah, 1990. There go. we go. Lovely. Okay, so moving on. The film also starred if the likes of... If only we could, Jan. If only we could. Oh, fuck. The film also starred Rosie O'Donnell, Bill Pullman, Rob Rayner, and Hanks's actual wife, Rita Wilson, as his sister. Weird. <laughs> and uh, with very charming performances by child actors Ross Mallinger and Gabby Hoffman. Gabby Hoffman, Hannah, yeah, a tiny Gabby, Gabby Hoffman. Hoffman. Who I, I think know. is a brilliant child actor, but like maybe we'll yeah. talk about that in a bit. You will have recently heard Hannah talk about the latter in the context of winning time. Subs. Sad time. Oh. Sorry for your loss, Hannah and Mick. Thank you. The film was inspired by 1957's An Affair to Remember, which is heavily referenced in this film and was initially written by Jeff Arch, but was rejected by a number of studios before David S. Ward and Efron were brought in to make it funnier. Did they succeed? I'm sure Hannah and Mick will both have thoughts. <laughs> now, Efron, obviously not a stranger to a rom-com, as I've already mentioned. She had already written When Harry Met Sally by this point, earning some serious plaudits in the process. If When Harry Met Sally felt like a big hit, expectations might have been wildly surpassed here. The film was one of the biggest of the year, making a whopping $227.8 million from a budget of $21 million. 
And wow, so it saw her, yes, a lot, isn't it? It saw her nominated for her second Best Original Screenplay Oscar. Critics were positive about it, even our old buddy Roger Ebert, who, despite thinking it was, and I quote, contrived as the late show, said it was also <laughs> so warm and gentle, I smiled the whole way through. Lads, he does have a heart. <laughs> yeah, but it's weird. Yeah. What a choice. Mm. So let's have a look at that warm and gentle plot and then let's ask Walter how warm and gentle he thought it was. <laughs> I love Walter. Just... And Sam, I guess, will ask him too. Anyway, Sam, played by Hanks, is a Chicago-based architect whose wife Maggie dies, leaving him as the sole parent of eight-year-old Jonah. Struggling to cope with his grief, Sam decides to up sticks and take his kid to emo capital of the world, Seattle. Because look, misery loves company, right? Yeah. After a while, Jonah wonders if Sam will ever deal with his loss and calls a radio phone in with Dr. Marsha Fieldstone, who encourages him to talk about his grief for Maggie and his reticence to rejoin the world of dating. Now, Ovs, ladies love a broken man, so they are sliding off their seats in excitement as he opens up about his loss. Certainly Annie Reid, played by Meg Ryan, a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, who's on her way home from a family Christmas dinner with new fiancé Boring Walter, is digging it. She can't stop thinking about that poor guy to the extent that she hires a private detective and generally abuses her employer's resources to find out more about him. As the bags of fan mail stack up outside Sam's house, if none of that was weird enough, Annie actually gets on a plane to go and gawp at him outside his house in broad daylight, completely uninvited while still engaged to poor old boring Walter. Walter's boring, but we'll talk about that. He's got a lot of allergies, aka... Makes him exciting. You never know what's going to happen. You never know when anaphylactic shock will set in. (laughs) After lovable BFF Becky, played by Rosie O'Donnell, fishes a letter that Annie's thrown away out of the bin to send to Sam, and Jonah replies on Sam's behalf because he doesn't like the woman Sam's decided to date, she arranges to meet Sam, in inverted commas, on top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day, while on a romantic trip with boring Walter. We've all done it. But hang on, Sam's not up for this. Can Jonah coerce him into it? And what about poor old boring Walter, jilted on Valentine's Day by his fiancée? Now, as I said before, this was a huge hit at the time, though more recently there have been some criticisms. Already alluded to... No. (laughs) They're going to get more recent as well, Jen. I can tell you that for nothing. (laughs) I've already alluded to the two obvious ones, that Annie essentially stalks Sam, and this is deemed to be romantic. But hey, it was a different time, and she's only a woman after all. (laughs) They're rubbish. Two... Writing for The Guardian, sorry to do this, guys, but Peter Bradshaw, who, for what it's worth, I think is absolutely right on this, says that the film propagates the fallacy that a widower makes a wonderful romantic catch. I'm sure we can add to this list. Poor I'm old sure boring water. <laughs> yeah. I've got a full 20-minute PowerPoint presentation <laughs> on the ethics of journalism, Jen, if you're interested. I feel like I might finally be forgiven for making a watch love, actually, because this is just as bad. <laughs> did either of you watch this film at the time? And do you remember how you felt about it then? Hannah, I think no. you didn't. No. <laughs> so, Mickey. <laughs> no, also no. Although I have read a lot of Nora Ephron. Uh, and I like a lot of Nora Ephron. I only saw When Harry Met Sally like four years ago for the first time. Mick, you can colour me surprised that you've never seen this. I'm I'm surprised. Well, sorry to surprise you, but there you go. Here we go. So, okay, you didn't watch it at the time. I did watch it at the time. I really liked it. <laughs> I was only probably 10 or 11 when I watched it. So, you know, fair enough. 
We have touched upon some of the more recent criticisms. Right, well, where to start? Annie is an unlikable cunt. Can we start yes. there? She's okay, awful. let's start there. That's fair. That's Why fair. Why does Nora yeah. Ephron think all women are rubbish? Can we start there? The women in this film are terrible. Like, she's really so done cliche. women dirty in this film, and I don't understand it. <laughs> Even Rosie O'Donnell, a woman who literally just exudes personality, mm. whether you like her or not, from every pore of her body is as bland as fuck in this film. But she says it yeah. in a New York accent, Hannah, so what's your point? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The women are just rubbish. Apparently women are just so emotional, we can't watch any films without crying, we can't even talk about a film without crying. This one did make me want to fucking cry, though, with rage. Yeah, just really rubbish. We're stalkers, like, desperate. No woman over 40 is ever going to get married. Fuck you, Efron. Although it. she does dispel that. That's presented by dickheads. And she's sort of going, like, that's bollocks, I think, in her defence. I don't have much defence for her, but that is one <laughs> point I will defend her on. But for this to be described as charming when one of its lead characters is one of the most unlikable characters I've ever had to spend 90-odd minutes with, I just don't understand. I don't think Meg Ryan's character, there's nothing I liked about her. Nothing. She's got pretty hair. I don't know who's at fault. I don't know whether it's Nora Ephron that's at fault or it's Meg Ryan that's at fault. But basically, she's just a, a, a rerun of Sally. But the point about Sally was that she was really annoying. That 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 is the point about Sally, that she's too much. I mean, I know you're not a fan of When Harry Met Sally, but everything that she does is awkward. And you're supposed to be as much with how annoyed Billy Crystal gets at her as you are meant to be with her as how frustrated she is with Billy Crystal. So I don't know who's to blame here, but they've basically written a Sally Light here. When she's singing along in the car, that could literally just be picked up and be put in when Harry met Sally and I wouldn't know the difference. I wouldn't know which film you were showing me. Yeah. I think that's just Meg Ryan, isn't it? I I was was just watching that bit and I'm like, here's Meg Ryan doing Meg Ryan. (laughs) Horses, 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 horses. I, I mean, maybe it's just because it's become like, you know. A means. I don't yeah. know, but it's just, yeah, it, I, I see what you mean, Hannah. Yeah. But there's nothing redeeming about Annie. Why would we be invested in her getting together with Sam? Not that I think Sam's an incredible character either, but why would we be invested in her getting together with Sam and becoming a stepmom to Jonah when she just seems like an absolute unbearable cunt i hated her so hard it also seems that she's got this situation where like well i think i don't know i think we're supposed to think she's great because she's not just interested in sam she also like includes jonah in her plans Mm. and her letter and everything whereas i look at that and think you're just emotionally manipulating your child Mm -hmm. and i think that makes you worse Mm -hmm. she's manipulative about everything all the way through she manipulates everyone I think it's really mean. I I think it is really mean because she's obviously she's in a relationship with Walter the whole time. So she's no regard for his feelings on any of this. And then you're kind of like drawn into this thing where like, oh, is it is it Sam or is it like my feelings about the wedding and like blah, blah, blah and whatever. It's like, why are you bringing all these people along for the ride, love? Like whatever your fucking issue is, deal with it. Then we can talk about what's happening after that. But like, this is on you, you twat. Like, why, why, why are you bringing everyone else into yeah. it? My favourite bit was when she was shut in a cupboard. Yeah. But the other thing yeah. is, she's presented this kind of like, I, I don't believe in fate and I don't believe in destiny. And I know that's like sort of a plot device. But then it's just like the way she acts like, 
she's absolutely fucking mental. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's a woman, Jen, and apparently we're all like that. But she risks her job because there's absolutely no way on earth. I don't know. Maybe she doesn't risk her job. Maybe that's an exaggeration. But there's literally no journalistic ethics in pursuing him for a story and for a relationship at the same time. When she meets him at the end, what is she going to say to him about why she was there? I know, right? And then they live happily ever after. Was she chasing him for a story? She's going to have to tell him. And then he's going to have to go, that's cute. Or he's going to, you know, you'd hope. That's really mental. I'm I'm actually not not up for this. And that's the thing, isn't it? He sees her, that's the third time he's seen her. And it's presented to us as if he's like, every time I saw her, I was like, oh, it's like magic or whatever. But it's like... It's the third time you've seen her. After the second time, I'm thinking, why do I keep seeing you in these random places? (laughs) Yeah. I don't even think any of this is the worst message of this film, though, I have to say. I think the worst message of this film is that the love of your life dies and a year and a half later, you should get the fuck over it and move on to somebody else. Oh, my God, but quicker, Hannah. That's when they're, like, really harassing him. They're literally walking away from the funeral and his sister, his sister-wife, is saying... Oh, in a few months' time, you'll be dating other people. You're like, fucking hell, let him grieve. So this is the other thing, the broken man rhetoric. I mean, it it fits really nicely alongside mental woman, doesn't it? But like, (laughs) they're they're very classic bedfellows, I find. The kind of like, he's clearly not over his dead wife in any way, shape or form. Well, that's attractive. Yeah. (laughs) Let's, let's... What's wrong with him? Why doesn't he just get over it in 10 minutes? No, like... but it's the way they love it. Like, the women are wild for it. And you're just uh, like, by oh implication, this film saying, he can't look after his son by himself either. Uh, Which I think is perfectly possible for single parents to bring up happy of kids. Of course. Agreed. I just think everything about this film is really fucking old-fashioned and really a cry for the family unit, for the mum, dad and kids. And I just think it's really unfortunate because although lots of men do marry somebody else within a year that's known that's a statistic how happy those relationships are and how sensible it is that somebody should get involved with them that quickly I don't know but if somebody wants to be sad for get fucking decade if they want to leave them alone absolutely why aren't they allowed to be I'm gonna speak in defence of Walter now, who was actually one of my favourite characters in the film. It's very slim pickings, as I think yeah. the listeners have probably gathered. But yeah, Walter isn't boring. Walter suggests meeting up in New York at a really fancy hotel on Valentine's Day. He yeah. takes her, he's had his mum's beautiful ring resized at Tiffany's, and he buys a very expensive bottle of champagne in a fancy restaurant. Walter's not someone who doesn't try and who doesn't understand a romantic gesture. She is, as Rosie O'Donnell's character, Becky, nails. She doesn't want to just be in love. She wants to be in love in a movie. And I'm sure that's supposed to be very meta, but it's just really annoying because he's actually constant. I think Walter is constant and he's something that is quite rare in a romantic lead. I realise he's not the romantic lead. He's kind. He's really kind. Uh, He clearly hates all of her family because they're all monsters, but he goes along with it (laughs) because he loves her. No, you're yeah. right. I loved Walter. And, you know, I have got a little bit of a crush on Bill Pullman. I think if you, you scruffle his hair a little bit, he's quite a sexy guy. But well, I just think he gets done down loads for no reason other than being someone who is in love with this woman. He's asked to marry him, who has said yes, and he wants to plan their wedding. 
it does very much perpetuate the myth that nice guys finish last, doesn't it? Like, it, I it, think yeah. he also gets fully... the best line because he goes, I don't want you to settle for me. I don't want to be anyone that yeah. someone settles for. And she goes, I don't deserve you. And he kind of goes, yeah, it's true. You don't. And I, I sure. really hope you believe yeah. that, Walter, because it's the truest line in the film. I remember watching it the first time and being like, yeah, thank God she's like, you know, sacked off that boring old dude or whatever. I mean, I was a child and it, that is the presentation of it. That's what the, I think the film wants you to think. Like, thank God she's like going after her destiny or blah, 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 blah. And I watched it again and I was just like, oh, Walter, like the fucking burn. Do you know what I mean? Of having done all of that for someone and you're sitting opposite the Empire State Building watching it turn into a heart. And you're literally being jilted by this fuckwit. He dodged a bullet, though, Jen. He's he dodged did. a bullet. He did. Yeah, true that. The guys are equally... St- I'd say apart from Walter, I think the men are equally as stereotyped as the women. Like, yeah. oh, we can't watch a romantic film or lots of chicks film or whatever it says. I don't think anyone, apart from Walter, comes out of this very well at all. The way that- Victoria... That made me very angry. Who's she? Who Sam's dating briefly. Yeah. Exactly. What happens to her? Oh, right. Okay. He just wants to get laid. She's just jettisoned, isn't she, as well? Yeah. And And also, it's like, Jonah, this is literally what you wanted. You wanted your dad to find someone to be happy. That's what he's trying to do. What's your problem? Also, Fuck a little off. tip for any kids who are listening. If, if you are in like a single parent family, as I was, and you don't like who your mum or your dad is dating... Wait till they've gone to sleep and put marmalade in their shoes. I found that did the trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but equally, they have that big row, him and his son. Yeah, fucking yeah. Hell. I haven't even bothered committing their names to my memory. Here the boy end up having this really big row. And you're like, well, yeah, on the one hand, you do want your dad to get with somebody else. But on the other hand, your son has also lost someone uh. and is really wounded. Why are you fucking shouting at him? He doesn't understand sex. He's too young. Although they have that really weird conversation about sex. It feels like the screenwriters, Efron and her co-writer, forget that Jonah mm. is eight sometimes. So I'm like, mm. which kid is having this conversation? And then they remember it when he has to get on a plane. So she's like, oh, Jessica. And Gabby Hoffman is great. I agree, Jen. It has to say, oh, shall I just tell them you're really short? They shouldn't mention it because you're embarrassed. That's funny. Yeah, well done. She delivers it really well. But then they kind of go, oh, shit, we remembered he's eight. But they, they have him having these conversations with his dad that are very grown up for an eight-year-old. Uh, I mean, there are lines in it that I found funny that I remembered from the first time around where he's like, have you never seen Fatal Attraction? And he's like, no. Is it? Like, I'm too young. I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. Like, well, I have. And it scared the shit out of me. And I shouted, she was so hard done to in Fatal Attraction. Michael Douglas was a dick to her <laughs> at the television. <laughs> Oh, you're misrepresenting women again. (laughs) Yeah. The the dinner party at the beginning where the guy just keeps going, a bee could kill me, I'm very allergic to bees, did make me laugh. And that's it. A bee. A bee. And I was like, Nora Ephron is such a sharp writer. So some of the lines are funny because I I actually think she does dialogue very well. So the conversations, even though I wasn't always on board with the content, she does that bounce, that natural conversation. I think she does that very, very well. And clearly the actors involved are good actors. Like Tom Hanks is great. So they get that bounce really nicely. I just hated what they were saying and where it was leading. Agreed. One thing I would say, at the end I was like, considering they're only in this together for like four seconds, which is, by the way, one of the initial criticisms of the film, why the studios didn't want to take it on. They were like, well, this is shit. The leading man and lady don't meet until like the last five minutes of the film. 
think the Which chemistry... Which is, by the way, four seconds too long. <laughs> I think the chemistry between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan is brilliant. I think it's really good. Yeah, relationships doomed, though. I I've got something to say about Gabby Hoffman. She's she's really, really, really interesting. Her mum was one of Warhol's set. She was called Viva, and she's quite was famous. She? As was that a real name? I mean, obviously not. But she was like one of the Warhol superstars, as they were called. And Gabby Hoffman grew up at the Chelsea Hotel and worked because they didn't have any money and did loads of stuff like Uncle Buck and then got to be an adult and didn't like it and went off and did some other stuff and then went back to the theatre in her 30s and then I think she was casting girls. She was in girls, And her yeah. career started taking off again. Yep. I always think she comes across as quite adult as a child. Oh, agreed. And probably knowing her background, you can you can see why she came across as quite adult as a child if she was sort of living in a hotel with her mother. Yeah. Surrounded by whatever the fuck went on at the Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. She does. She's and... very mature as a, a fellow eight-year-old in this film, yeah. isn't she, Jessica? But yeah, like there's a bit yeah. where, again, where they seem to forget that Jonah and Jessica ate. Sam mm. walks into the room and they're in that chair and he's like, can you shut the door, Dad? And he kind of shuts the door and then he opens it again. It's like, what do you think they're getting up to? They're eight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, what they're getting up to is illegally booking flights to New York. That happens later, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> that does happen. If only it was so easy to do, we'd all be off to New York right now. But yeah, the, yeah. the kid is just absolutely, no one's stopping him in New York going, dude, are you all right? <laughs> like, you're clearly very small. Uh, why are you in New York? Another thing that I thought dated this film, sorry to preempt the, uh, the, <laughs> the outcome Imagine of this, this review. Imagine if this was a surprise for any of our listeners by this stage. <laughs> You'd never get to leave a bag on the Empire State Building for that length of time now. Uh, when she happen. picked it up, I went, which is not very nice, but I really did dislike her a lot. <laughs> and it's again, like this whole idea that Annie, this woman is, who is just awful but it's so charming that she can talk her way to the top of the mm. empire state building when it's shut oh fuck off she's annoying she's awful she's the worst she's the so worst bad. well lads time to not, dated. not <laughs> okay mick shouldn't have dated uh i shouldn't have dated her yeah it's dated it's awful but it's not even that it's just dated it's just shit I have to say, I've I've watched this film a fair a fair few times, and I do have like a bit of nostalgia and a bit of nostalgic kind of fondness for it. So I didn't hate watching it actually, but it is dated in in so so many ways, yeah, and in ways that I could not have predicted. What's next? Oliver, Oliver, never, never before, before has a boy asked for more. We're going to watch Harry Seacum deliver the most acting in one word that has ever been recorded on camera. Oh. Oh. Yeah, we're going to watch Oliver. Great. Maybe. Standard issue for all women.